I think that's a large part of the power of YouTube is that if you have a dozen people you follow on YouTube and you're watching them regularly, they're filling that slot of people you actually know because you're watching their face talk to you, you're listening to their voice, you're sharing in their ideas. And now with live streaming, you can interact at some level with those people as well. So I think a lot of our print culture is going to move into this oral area. So now actually the video essay or a series of video essays are the new book. Uh, it's The print book will still exist, but it will be the place where you really demonstrate the the technical credibility of your ideas. And most people are going to engage with your thinking through through the video, through the oral telling of stories. Uh, so my, my wonder is, will storytelling go in this direction as well? Welcome, friends, to Obviously the Future, the podcast that explores the massive trends that will shape our world in conversation with the trailblazers, nonconformists, and hidden experts who are building tomorrow today. Who do we have with us today, Arvin? Today, we have Damian Walter who runs a really big science fiction community that is on various platforms. So he runs a science fiction YouTube channel that posts critiques of a lot of popular science fiction in TV, movies, uh, and in books. And then also hosts the science fiction podcast that goes deeper into some of the myths that underpin our society. He also runs a community of about 30,000 members interested in science fiction uh, on Facebook. So he's got a really interesting background as someone who studied the art of storytelling. And where we came across him was he published a critique of the Techno-Optimist Manifesto by Mark Andreessen that both of us found interesting. And so it'll be fascinating to get his perspectives on what, what we're doing as investors and how we are evolving as storytellers as a society. Awesome. Welcome, Damien. It's, it's great to have you here. I want to start with asking you about the reason that you, you caught our interest, which is when I heard this reaction to the Techno Optimist Manifesto, immediately forwarded to Caitlin uh, and said, we got to listen to this. So here you took a very specific attempt at reacting to the Techno Optimist Manifesto by A16Z, Mark Andreessen, one of the biggest investors. Uh, in the world. So tell me when you first read it, what made you decide to react? Oh, well, thank you for listening to it. First of all, uh, these audio commentaries for the science fiction podcast, because I now have a large science fiction community on Facebook. We're just, we're heading towards 35,000 members on that community. The science fiction channel on YouTube, which is about kind of outreaching to new audiences and the podcast feed and the podcast feed is where it all started and it's my core audience and i do these kind of long free form audio commentary so if you made it to the end of that i think maybe it was 2 hours long and i was losing my voice by the end of it but there was a lot to say uh, about mark andreessen's uh, techno optimist manifesto so i felt there was a lot to respond to in there um, and as I hope I made clear, like Andreessen, I think is, uh, well, I guess now he's old in the arena of tech, but he's a, he's a young public intellectual uh, in an arena where people really hit their stride in their seventies and and eighties. And this is like a big a big swing 
from him about philosophy and uh, and the future of humankind. Uh, so I I felt there was uh, a lot to uh, to uh, to build on and to respond to and to talk about in the context of where is our tech industry going at the moment? Because I think that's a very clear expression of of what I would call uh, uh, a neo religion. Uh, that we have in our world. We have these kind of new kind of belief systems built on philosophies and political viewpoints. And Mark was really clearly articulating the techno-optimist worldview there. Yeah, for sure. OpenAI obviously had a big weekend last weekend and Mark Andreessen's not involved, but I think that really brought to the forefront the reality of confronting these techno-optimist philosophies and mm. made people really choose sides and even publicly state where they are. Yeah, well, we're in a really interesting situation with AI at the moment. I try not to comment on it technically too much because the, the so much of what's happening technically well for everyone is, is in a kind of black box and we just press buttons and things come out at the other end for us. But I think it's interesting what it is as a a psychological experience for humanity that we've been telling this story about AI, primarily in science fiction, and primarily a really dark story from uh, like early short stories by uh, by Harlan Ellison. I have no voice and I, I have no mouth, sorry, and I must scream. And this is about the last six humans and they've been trapped underground by the emergent AI called RAM uh, and it's just torturing the last of humanity and then we have Terminator and the Matrix and this is all this is all dark apocalyptic stuff humanity has a trend towards apocalypticism uh, and then when was it now is it 18 months ago now uh, open AI put chat GPT out there and go hey look we've got AI and humanity just freaks out yeah, because we can get told overnight the news spreads instantly. And we already have this narrative, this myth in place about AI. And I guess the big question is how much of that myth is going to be what actually happens in our reality? Or or is this even AI, as we might call it? We have an interesting conversation in the science fiction community saying, what if we called this applied statistics? How yes. many people would be excited by what happens there? Mm -hmm. Probably much, 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 much fewer. And we wouldn't attach this apocalyptic narrative to it at the same time. Although as a writer, I did spend some time in a, an apocalyptic mindset thinking, <laughs> yes. well, that's it. Yes. That's it. The All writers have to go through that phase. <laughs> yes. yeah. I think you're right to point out on AI, the the language that we use. And there may be a deliberate argument that, okay, by using artificial intelligence, by latching onto these myths, perhaps there's more hype, more investment, more resources are, are, are devoted to this sector. What do you think the role of fiction or science fiction versus the role of capital corporations in this kind of war for advancing artificial intelligence and the myths associated with them? Hmm. Well, they, they seem to become very closely related. Uh, when I'm trying to justify my obsessive interest in science fiction, one of the things I will point to is is how closely this the the most dynamic, most profitable, powerful emergent industries in the world are tied up with with science fiction. So you have someone like Elon Musk, who is an expert at deploying these science fiction uh, narratives 
as the marketing for what he's doing. And you can see that when he kind of brings a robot out into the world. It's not a robot yet. It's a man in a robot costume. But he, he was making a play for that narrative. He didn't quite get to that one, but he'd successfully done uh, kind of uh, within solar system space exploration as a way of raising up his, his rocket development company above all uh, competitors. Uh, and I, I've done a lot of work with with tech companies of different kinds, helping them with their 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 brand storytelling, their narrative storytelling, because it's always tied uh, to a science fiction subject. And this is where you you can say it in a simple way that we we saw the communicators on Star Trek, and a few decades later we had flip phones. Uh, but that that's a bit actually underplaying what what we're doing. We need some kind of vision of where we're going in the world at the moment, because we've certainly unleashed uh, unparalleled change and technology. Uh, and I, I think we've got, even if we just stopped developing technologies now, we would have at least a century of chaotic change ahead of us. And the way humans do this is through a shared story. This is something like, uh, Yuval Noah Harari, he talks about and is popularized in his, his book, some kind of homo deus. Humans are storytelling creatures. We have a big shared narrative that brings us together. Uh, and But at the moment, we don't have that shared narrative. We have people retreating to religious narratives of, of the past because they offer a kind of certainty and they're very coherent. And one of the, the narratives, or I call them the mythos of our time, uh, is this techno-optimist uh, 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 narrative, which came out very strongly of science fiction of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, kind of American magazine science fiction, amazing stories, astounding. And these were very positive stories about how we were going to use nuclear energy, how we were going to explore the, the inner planets of the solar system, maybe go to other stars. Uh, and this all predates the space race, uh, when that seems to be becoming a reality, we've actually built the Rothkicks, we've been to the moon. So for that generation, the, the boomer generation, who are a big part of the membership of my science fiction community, this was all going to be real. This was the real future. And then it just didn't happen. Uh, we have built the internet, we've built technology technologies in the digital sphere but our material technological progress seems to have halted so now even those people are, are left without a coherent story of, of what we're going to do so a large part of my my thinking as a critic is well what story what story can we pick i think that's where we are we could choose a story but we have to choose it and bring enough of the rest of humanity with us to to make it compelling have you looked critically at the the key story that we have in America about the American dream? Uh, I think it's quite implicit in that in that techno optimist uh, mythos because uh, as Mark Andreessen was articulating in his manifesto, we have a very widespread belief, and it's not it's not without substance. It's simply incomplete that technology is what grows the economic pie that then more and more people can can share in and that's the 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 underpinning logic of the american dream the the logos of that story and then you have the mythos of it as well that you can have uh what would it be in the 50s a white picket fence and a a, a huge house that would have been impossible for working class people 
uh, before. What it, What is it today? You can be in a big metropolitan uh, hub, living a, a high-tech life with your Apple laptop. You know, Apple plays to this mythos uh, as well. Uh, and it's not that it's untrue or unattainable. And I still hold a belief that we could we could achieve that for a very large proportion of people. But I think where we find ourselves increasingly over the last two decades is that we just all have doubts. Uh, what is going to happen 10 years from now? Well, it could be anything from uh, uh, that kind of slightly consumerist utopia where everyone in the world has great shopping malls to go to and Starbucks and there's no war anymore, or, or it could be nuclear apocalypse. We really don't know. Uh, and all of the certainties are, are being lost to people. And I think that's particularly difficult uh, at the moment for people who maybe had the highest level of certainty, which was the citizenry of the Western world, not just America, but but Western Europe as well. We we really thought it was all sorted probably around the time of Francis Fukuyama and uh, uh, his his thinking on the end of history as well that we're there this is we've we've made it there we just have to bring everyone else up to this level and i think mark andreessen's techno optimist manifesto was like a call to say no we could still do that we just have to uh double down on the technology uh and you know silence the voices who are skeptical about this is where yes. you start to run into problems in the manifesto yes. i think yes well, that's something that I've been pondering upon. Usually a manifesto is someone coming from a more philosophical bent. For one of the largest investors in the world, someone investing in early stage companies, one might argue that the role of early stage investors is to understand the mythos of our society, maybe the stories that are underpinning our society, mm. the trends in which are happening, and to invest behind those trends. That That's part of what we do at Avalanche is we're saying, we are sensing the avalanches that are coming. What are, What's obviously the future and how do we invest behind those trends? But here, by publishing a manifesto, it's almost like Mark Andreessen and A16Z are trying to take a role mm. in not just identifying the mythos, but shaping the mythos that underpin our society. And I wonder whether that's an alignment of incentives or a conflict that merits further examination. Well, we have interesting parallels because uh, there is, of course, uh, uh, a realm of the public intellectual that has entirely grown out of Silicon Valley or the tech industry widely. And you could name you know, two or three dozen individual figures. And Mark Andreessen is, is one of the most famous as well in that field, as well as his commercial success. Uh, but then we also have the uh, the fields of kind of political philosophy and the people who who went to university and, and trained as philosophers uh, or uh, other other fields. Uh, and therefore didn't make their their billions in Silicon Valley. And they they have clashing perspectives. Uh, and I would say it's simply a matter of capacity that we we have that that really famous tweet. I forget who made the tweet. Uh, uh, science fiction writer. I invented the torment nexus uh, as a lesson to humanity. And then you have a uh, 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 sorry, venture capital firm or something saying we have finally created the torment nexus and and that keeps going viral because of this division. And 
I think, and I'm, I'm not actually trying to say which side of this is right, but if you've been in that uh, 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 Silicon Valley technology world, you have a, a bunch of incentives for how to think about technology because you want your projects to succeed and you don't want to be self-sabotaging with the idea of, well, this this might destroy humanity in 80 years time, but but who knows? Because none of us can know that. But then the people who who are kind of highly trained in this area of thinking. So you could take someone like Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, not hugely publicly well known, very famous in the, the area of philosophy, probably the world's greatest uh, political philosopher living at the moment. And he very systematically, much more effectively than I did in my response, in the mid 90s, took apart a lot of these narratives of liberalism and secularism, uh, techno utopianism, as we might uh, call them. Uh, but his his arguments aren't aren't very well known in the world. He doesn't have Mark Andreessen's flair and ability to communicate to the the masses either, or indeed Elon Musk's. And I'm interested in in trying to mediate something. Uh, between these as as far as possible because they both have things to to contribute you call elon musk a storyteller i think it's pretty obvious the narratives that he's constructed around his companies have been a huge source of value to how their trajectories have unfolded and well i'm interesting in, in your perspective on the storytelling journey overall you've approached this as both a, a critic in the science fiction realm but also as a creator and author so what pulled you in and what kind of sparked your initial interest in storytelling from a meta perspective? My interest, that's always a difficult question to answer because these things that we do in life are, are kind of psychological obsessions that have their roots very young. Uh, so I've just always been fascinated by by story. I was the kid who was like, I'm going to write books or be a film director or something from about the age of, of six. And at some point you realize you need to figure out how this stuff works if you're going to do that, because it's a tenuous enough career option anyway. So if you don't and you see the people who make it, like as Hollywood screenwriters or uh, in any of these fields that we widely call storytelling, they actually have a pretty detailed technical understanding of story, especially these days. Uh, so I went about trying to, to learn that, and we all learn it in our own kind of way. And I started to realize that um, I was also teaching as a lecturer in creative writing at the time. This is in my late 20s. So I was really starting to focus my my energies on learning that the art and craft of storytelling, that there was kind of a lost discipline of, of story. You could study creative writing or trying to write novels or screenplay writing. But then you went and looked in fields like psychology or, or sociology and story and narrative played a very important part there as well. Uh, this was about a decade before the, the popularization of, of the, the broader use of story across our society. So it was a big revelation to me at the time. And I did basically a decade of research and that resulted in my uh, my course, The Rhetoric of Story, where I teach the, the seven foundations of, of storytelling as I understand them. Uh, and that includes things like change and the self at the center of the story, structure of stories and and so on. And that, that's been a very successful course. It has a little bit over 60,000 students worldwide now. 
this is all part of the transition as well from institutional learning to uh, I think the situation we're entering where our greatest teachers are are on YouTube now. You want to learn anything, you find the people who are big on YouTube, you buy their courses, maybe you you work with them individually. And uh, so that transition has been going on as well. And in the process of doing that, I really started to think intensely about what is the role of story uh, for us psychologically we seem to build our identities through stories we we are a story walking around in the world we give ourselves a name we have a social role and then there's also a broader political or civilizational models of how we we are this big shared story now across 8 billion people all talking to each other but primarily kind of we have I guess now our national stories and they've been very significant for the last couple of centuries um i'm kind of a post-national person i travel all around the world uh, i live in i've lived in a couple of dozen countries now but for most people that shared story of the nation is very central actually to their identity and all of these questions i find come back to storytelling how do these stories work what have we been doing with them uh historically and uh i've been i've been lucky to find some success talking about this because i think it is a lost field of thinking i sometimes say that uh story is like the physics of the human world once you understand stories you understand a huge amount about what's what's going on in our world at the moment we, we like to say that YouTube is the largest university in the world. Yeah. It's one of our, our avalanches. And I still think that not enough people see it that way. I mean, clearly billions of people have, but when you look at how much money is still going into the traditional university system, that's a, not a story that I think has been totally told and embedded in our cultural yeah. mindset is, hey, you don't need to go into debt or spend four years at a institution and get a stamp. You know, it's all right here. I, I think it's probably embedded in a lot more of the world outside uh, the Western world, uh, initially with, mm. with tech training. Um, but I think there's there's huge numbers of people uh, training in various tech certifications by, by just doing the online version of this and then going and, and working in these, these huge industries now. Um, but... It's interesting why we can't quite see this yet, because I think it's been clear for a while. I, yeah. I'm a, an early online person, and I my first online writing experiences were for an online strategy game that I was playing when I went to university. So that's what I did with my, my university time. Uh, and I also started blogging about this game, which had a few thousand players at the time. I was very briefly world champion of the game for like three oh, wow. days. In the, nice. in the league but What's also the the when game? i was stellar crisis it's still out there you play it in your browser there's still some like two dozen hardcore players who haven't let go of it i had been learning this online world and it was a first taste i guess of internet fame that i had a couple of thousand of these we were a really toxic group of young guys who played this game so i understand like 4chan community before it existed i was in one of those um, and then when I was, uh, I kind of very young, I started teaching writing and was lecturing at university and I could, to me, it seemed really clear that these were 
at most levels of that education system, basically redundant, uh, redundant institutions. Now, at least that would be my argument. But of course, it takes time for this to play out. We had a very strong public message to people that you should go to college. We spent 70 totally. years reinforcing that message. But now I, I've done this for at least the last 10 years. If I am interacting with with young people, which I still do sometimes, uh, I would say to them, you probably don't need to go to college now. But it's very intimidating when you're 18 because you don't yet have any of the skills to go and do this. I couldn't have done what I do now when I was 18. Uh, so we have this this skills gap that people can easily fill up with with video games, which are probably part of the answer to education as well, I think. We can unify video games and YouTube into something yes. that doesn't waste people's time. We'd probably have the ultimate education uh machine we we call uh, it efficacious edutainment the problems with it are, are fairly major as well though and this is yeah. something i think science fiction has explored as well so you have something like ready player one yes uh yep. and that's one of the the first big narratives about what this world of plugging into a a, a metaverse is is gonna be like uh yes. and one of the things that's interesting about that book is how uncritical it is of the metaverse space and yes. kind of the the commercialism of it. I forget the name of the author, but he's just a big nerd. That's what he yeah. says about himself. I'm not trying to insult him there. And he loves these things. He loves yeah. the brands. He's invested in them. Uh, and one of the things I tried to do as a critic then is to put the other side of this narrative. You know, do you, do you, and this is really difficult because if I talk about video games, I get, 50% thumbs down on on YouTube. Oh, interesting. Uh, well, because people we don't we don't want to hear the 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 problems that we're enmeshed in and we don't mm -hmm. want our fantasies uh broken up. So I think it is a really massive problem. I do have a big video essay coming up about this. Um that in in video games I I the way I phrase this is that there are two games in video games one is the game you think you're playing and the other is the game within that which is the gamification and it's all of the things that are hooks to your yes. psychology and your biochemistry yes. that keep you playing the game um and unfortunately in in the way we we shape these industries at the moment uh these can take people especially who are in that that meaning gap late teens, early 20s, where am I going to go in life and just invest all of their energy into these game, uh, into these game structures. And I think if you were to look at it, maybe from a national government level, maybe, maybe this is happening in China, you would say, we really don't want our young people doing this. They're, they're producing yes. young people at the end of this system who can't really partake fully in our uh, our commercial and industrial systems and you might say that you want to take that video game industry and do something constructive constructive with it but we don't have the political capital to do that at the moment and i think that comes with its own set of issues the easiest example that comes to mind is duolingo which has kind of taken all the gamification features and really just tried to take all the crack-inducing mm -hmm. elements of modern technology and apply them to what they believe is an unalloyed good in the acquisition of language. And still, as I watch my daughter playing it, 
it's still just something doesn't it doesn't sit right with me seeing all these like these tactics being used to manipulate her attention and even though it's in a harmless and potentially constructive way i can't quite precisely outline my objection to it but it it does come with the feeling of unease yeah and that's that's a very major issue across lots of levels of our society at the moment because uh we have uh, uh, a, a portion of our population who have both the, the technical insight into these things and also the personal development so that you can you can hold yourself outside these structures and then potentially manipulate them. And you could manipulate them for ill or for good, but a large part of what our top-level industries do is that kind of manipulation of these structures. That's, that's basically what marketing has been for a, a long time. Uh, but whether you do it for good or for ill, you're still manipulating people Yes, on, on some level. And that's a very major moral question that yes. I think should be, should be troubling our moral philosophers more than it does. <laughs> yes. Well, so speaking of manipulating to, to reach your audience, tell us a little bit about your master plan as a storyteller. What are you trying to go after? Uh, I, I think I'm tracking this, this evolution of, of forms that the new, still to call them new now, the, the digital realm uh, allows us to to permit. So for a long time, it was blogging. That was the major area where people interacted through text. Uh, but I think YouTube has, has clearly been the major pivot point, and I don't think we're we're going back. And I think we're transitioning. We're returning to an oral culture. Uh mm-hmm which is very natural for humans we're we're probably wired for for orality of some kind to speak and to listen uh, especially to watch faces speaking i think that's a large part of the power of youtube is that if you have a dozen people you follow on youtube and you're watching them regularly they're filling that slot of people you actually know because you're watching their face talk to you you're listening to their voice you're sharing in their ideas and now with live streaming, you can interact at some level with those people as well. So I think a lot of our print culture is going to move into this oral area. So now actually the video essay or a series of video essays are the new book. Uh, it's The print book will still exist, but it will be the place where you really demonstrate the the technical credibility of your ideas. And most people are going to engage with your thinking through through the video through the oral telling of stories uh so my my wonder is will storytelling go in this direction as well there are amazing oral storytellers in the world today somebody like uh uh martin shaw uh and he's he's just at the moment preparing to do a huge telling of the odyssey so he's going to spend three days telling the odyssey to an audience of people who've who've bought really expensive tickets to go and watch him do this as well Mm -hmm. um but there's not yet a a a narrative equivalent in our social media for at one point people were saying well maybe short stories will be very popular short short films uh of course there's kinds of narrative but we haven't really got the equivalent to a film on youtube so i think it might be something like uh, the telling of stories, which also reflect on that that telling, because increasingly people are interested in 
actively talking about what our stories mean. And this is where I think criticism is, is having its rock star moment because there's now so much story in the world. There's so many TV shows and video games uh, that where we actually form our communities around our stories is in the critical discussions around them. Uh, sometimes those are very argumentative and culture warry. I try to make my my criticism yes. more to hold it above that level if possible. But you know, I'm I'm pretty much a very progressive thinker in my my way. So there's a limit to how how many people I can uh, <laughs> bring into my tribe at, at any one time. Uh, but we want that criticism as well. So I I have a a, a vision that we might start telling stories again uh, and in a kind of tribal way, talking about those stories whilst we, whilst we tell them. But we need some visual element for this, an accompaniment for the, for the voice, because we're now an audio-visual culture. So then I, I've been uh, experimenting with, with AI as the visual provider for, for that, that visual element i don't think it's gonna compete with film and in fact that's a problem people have the expectations of film or a television show that they might come to that kind of experience with uh but i think it might do something quite quite different from film with the the creation of of visual storytelling uh you will have to tune in for the ocean of story around the middle of, of 2024 to see whether that that gamble of mine will will pay off i think it's going to be about six to eight episodes it's going to be a a one-man ai generated netflix tv show uh on the science fiction youtube channel so we'll see whether that works or not awesome i'm excited one okay. of the things that we think about sometimes in america 52 percent of americans can read above a sixth grade reading level mm. and the amount of people reading a book for pleasure or magazines is just like dropping. So do you think that this is one of the areas where humanity is becoming a little de-skilled? People are consuming their media, audio, you know, movies, and they're not reading. So are there implications there for critical thinking that are, are maybe beneath the surface? Yeah. Yeah, there's there's huge implications. I I think these technologies tend to bifurcate humanity. So about half the people will will take these new communication technologies and very quickly upskill themselves by watching philosophy YouTube and learning technical skills at a very high speed. And the other half go in a different direction of momentum uh, and spend a lot of time doing all the things you're not supposed to do uh online um whatever whatever that will be uh, and that tends to to drag them in a, a downward direction i think uh and i find in in what i do building a community around science fiction for instance so if you look at the demographics for science fiction it is kind of um it's it contains a lot of ideas, but there are ideas that are communicated in a way that a very broad audience can understand, which is the advantage of storytelling. So if you have a big open discussion with thousands of participants, you have to realize that quite a proportion of those pub participants uh, 
they just they haven't they've never had a lot of time in their life to engage with complex conceptual thinking or critical thinking so their response to that conversation uh, sometimes it might be very defensive or very aggressive uh, and a part of what i do as a, as a moderator is is try and engage those people rather than just getting angry with them uh, because a lot of the way that an inability to think critically emerges online is as anger and you see this a massive amount you know if we go from the relatively small field of science fiction to like the big arena of politics uh, you could look at something like the phenomenon of donald trump trump is talking to those people who don't have a lot of critical insight into the political realm uh but the the problem is then when you uh which is what we did as a society we got really angry with those people when they stepped into the public realm and quite rightfully they just went off and voted for donald trump as a response to that so it's it's i guess the the larger picture of that is how do we engage the full spectrum of humans who are out there in conversations that were once just elite conversations uh, had in the top magazines or in educational institutions? Because if we can't do that, these conversations will fail over and over again, I think. What's the gender sort of breakdown in your science fiction community and, you know, and in science fiction broadly? Terrible. Uh, so on YouTube, uh, it's about 98% male. Wow. Wow. Uh, the, the audience. Uh, and because of the nature of the YouTube algorithm, it's very difficult to do anything about that. I did a big video essay on Ursula Le Guin. Uh, yeah. That's two Fantastic, by now. the way. Really Thank good. You. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's heading for a quarter of a million views now. So that's the biggest essay on the channel. Um, but it was one of the few crossover niches that I could find that would work in the algorithm and reach women other than men, basically. And it successfully did that. It's up to about 13, 15 percent uh, women viewers. The science fiction Facebook community that I run is about probably has about 15 percent female members, which I consider quite good for that for that niche. Uh, and I think that's that's partly achievable because in moderating that group, I've tried to, when I talked about the the toxic online communities I was a part of as a young guy, like I put quite a lot of effort into squeezing those communities out. Now, uh, I don't want those to be the voices who are speaking uh, because people see that and they just don't engage, of course, especially uh, women who want to engage with the community. You, t you talk about the role of a critic which is to be impartial, going above and beyond the role of, of a reviewer and kind of holding yourself to an ethical standard and really contemplate the work. You know, another podcast that Caitlin and I both listen to, uh, one of the, the guys often says, uh, no conflict, no interest, which is mm -hmm. to say basically any anyone you're hearing providing some seemingly critical perspective on something often has some conflict at stake, right? So the role of critics, given that a lot of media now is becoming either highly corporatized or going decentralized directly to the sources. You know, athletes are telling their stories about their careers, uh, all sorts of ways the the narratives are being shaped directly by the participants without really any critical lens being applied. Do you think 
there is still the role for a critic that, in your opinion, has no conflict? Hmm. Uh, I think yes, absolutely. And I'm using quite a broad term of, of critic here. Maybe you might also uh, add in the, the role of moderator to this. So hmm. you look at a figure like Lex Fridman, Lex's success has been to fuse together a lot of disparate communities who are, are reasonably happy that he won't uh, take against them in a conversation that involves their values. Uh, and there is a limit to doing that. Uh, if you even look at like a figure like Joe Rogan, who's somewhat demonized in the, the mainstream media, but in terms of independent media, he's actually, he's quite a broad spread of different viewpoints that can uh, come and join him. Uh, if you do the the easy thing now as a critic or a moderator or however we talk about these figures in the, the new alternative media, the easy thing is to play to a tribe. So uh, there's all kinds of people you can point to who, who do that in our media sphere. In the science fiction world, there's a guy called the Critical Drinker, uh, he he knows my critique of him, so it's fine to repeat it. And he's he's really built up this uh, uh, what what would I say politely? This kind of four chan guys on YouTube. They're really angry about Star Wars, and there's a whole subset of these guys. And you can do that if you just want to appeal to one audience. Uh, but in terms of the uh, uh, the kind of the natural evolution of, of how audiences grow, you're then going to hit a hard limit that there's all these other groups of people you can't speak to. Uh, so the people who are critics in the way I'm talking about it here, who can really reach that, that high level of large audience, it will be because of this act of uh, balancing relationships across a broad spectrum, not an infinite spectrum, uh, of course, but a broad enough spectrum of groups who would otherwise not get on. And I find this quite encouraging because I think it is providing some kind of balance uh, to the, the the very dangerous culture wars that are spinning around online uh, and to the kind of misinformation that is very common online as well. Because again, um, you can't spread too much misinformation if if you're caught too much being unreliable for people people are, are again gonna tune out and you end up in the position of, of audience capture basically where only the people you've misinformed will continue to listen to you and yeah. if you try to inform them properly they will go away and find someone else who is gonna continue to happily misinform them about the world in the way that they want. That is a dystopian view of where that would lead people. Let me shift gears here. You obviously are an expert on building communities. So let me ask you a, a question. When it comes to our adolescent generation, the, the, the kids growing up, so much of their lives are spent online. So what would you say to a high school that is really trying to shape their, shape this community to be thriving and one in which they can prosper going forward? I think we're going to need to acknowledge a, a different idea of what children are and what, what children do. Uh, I could see a, a possibility um, in, it may already be happening actually, and we, we're, we're not documenting it, where people have a really productive part of their career between 
13 to 19 uh, because they have or you you have at that age intense capacity to focus uh, which you will probably never have again in your adult life you're a you're a learning machine and you can learn the things that nobody else uh, in your society is, is yet it will probably ever learn at that level you can learn the emerging technologies uh and i've i've seen a, an interesting uh piece by jordan hall where jordan hall uh is uh describing his daughter completing a minecraft project with her friends as a kind of uh a emergent group mind entity uh because only they understand Minecraft. Their teacher doesn't understand Minecraft. Uh, and they built a computer in Minecraft over a weekend, a group of six of them. Uh, and, and that's just one example. Uh, so I, I think the whole idea of education, uh, liberals have been saying this for so, for so long that it feels futile to even try and express it. But uh, I think the things we've been saying about education that it should be a lifelong process uh that it should be tied into all these new technologies i think that may just start to happen because your 13 year old will have a higher income than you uh as her middle-aged dad uh for three or four years from some emergent technology that she's doing as part of a collective there's fifteen thousand 13 year olds collaborating to to complete this vast science project that only the world's top physicists understand, but they're harnessing these, these young minds to do it. I know there's a dystopian version of that as well, but I'm trying to look on the, the good side of that possibility. Yeah. Um, it's funny we, that you've heard to say yeah. that because I've told Arvin that I think this is our strategy now that we're full 37 and he, and I was looking at, I don't have any yeah, kids. Done. He has two daughters. I was like, yeah, we're, we're done. We're toast. I'm not going to get this, <laughs> you know, this AI is going to hit, hit and I'm going to try, but it's, it's not going to happen. Yeah. So we got to invest in these young kids um, yeah. because we, we're over the hill now. Yeah. 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 That's why I'm impressed that you're trying to do the synthographic storytelling and adopt these new technologies. Caitlin and I have tried to pull incorporate AI into our workflows and mm -hmm. we feel like boomers every single time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I do feel like a boomer doing it. I'm, I'm the guy asking really dumb questions on the, cause it's this weird ecosphere of how cutting edge tech happens. So it's mostly stable diffusion at the moment. And yeah. there's one guy who, keeps a page together for the Google Colab so you can run stable diffusion on a supercomputer somewhere in California. Um, and people ask him questions on his buy me a coffee page. And I'm the guy asking the really dumb questions and the people say, we answered that further further back up the, the thread. But it's also exciting. It's so exciting to follow these emergent technologies. I haven't seen like a homebrew tech like that since the early days of the the world wide web really when it all seemed crazy and like magic yes yes totally we bring on experts of all sorts of domains to try to tell our audience what's something that given your expertise in the storytelling the community building domains what is something that's obviously the future that most people are probably not aware of yet well i I'm probably going to have to go really dark 
on on that answer, unfortunately. But I think the area of transhumanism worries me because it's it's a serious academic discipline. I would critique that, but it has a, a number of very large research institutes. You have people like Nick Bostrom who are leading figures in it. Um, and it's all about the idea of moving beyond our, our current humanity. And I I think when we look at look at history, um, that is the most dangerous idea that we can have, however we hold it. Uh, I, I think we have to build a world which which fits humans as we are and not try and fit humanity into our technological future in some way. Uh, and so if I was going to say something to look for in the future, it's for transhumanism being taken increasingly seriously in our politics, uh, in our corporate world, shaping a lot of our thinking. And I would, I would warn against uh, transhumanism as, as a, a reincarnation of some very old religious thinking that we don't want back in the world now. I just heard Elon Musk in an interview talking about a discussion with Larry Page where or Page accused Musk of being speciesist. And Elon was just like, well, what team am I supposed to be on here? What team are yeah. you on? So it, it, the, these types of discussions, are, I think, are going to bleed into the mainstream more and more. Well, they inform a, a lot of how people think about the world. I, I think it's probably probably over 50% of, of my science fiction audience um, would, would believe that at some point we will upload our consciousness uh, to, uh, to a computer. And uh, I don't believe that. I, I, I think when you dig into the idea of consciousness as an information structure, it actually it doesn't make sense at all. It's completely illogical. Um, but it just it's it's now a fundamental belief of how we see our world and it's attached to a lot of other beliefs. And I'm very interested in our core beliefs and what they they lead us to if they're if they're unchallenged. Yes. Okay. So Caitlin has this bookshelf called My Younger Self, which is a list of books that she recommends that she wished she had read at an earlier age, could have impacted her trajectory in a different way. So the bar is high for a, a science fiction critic. What What is a book that you would recommend to your younger self you wish you had encountered earlier in life? Oh, wow. Uh, what's on your shelf, Caitlin? I have a lot of books about economics and startups uh -huh. and business building. You know, Peter Thiel's Zero to One, I'm sure, is on there. Ben Horowitz, The Hard Things About Hard Things. The Charisma Myth is the one I said I would recommend to my younger self, which is the idea that... Um, anyone can be charismatic. It's an equation of um, power plus warmth. And there's techniques that you can do to project mm. those things. Yeah. Charisma is, is, is uh, how much someone likes you plus how dangerous they are. I seem to remember we like dangerous people who can, who are happy to look after us as individuals. Yeah. Um, my, my book, I wish that I had discovered G.W.F. Hegel, the German idealist philosopher at a younger age. He was only a name. Now, I wouldn't have understood Hegel at all. I think as individuals, uh, we, we find things when we're ready for them. And you can have books that you just aren't ready for, and they're just going to sit there. And maybe it will put you off for encountering them too soon. Uh, I still can't read Hegel. He's incredibly <laughs> difficult to read. Um, but he's he's 
the most significant political and philosophical thinker of the modern era, basically. And I encountered lots of his ideas secondhand in other forms. And if I had known what Hegel had said before I encountered them, I'd have been much less confused for a while. So I think it's these kind of root thinkers who have influenced a lot of what came afterwards, but maybe in themselves were really obscure. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's useful to face those people. And I read a chapter of Hegel every now and again, and then I go and listen to a talk by someone to explain what that chapter <laughs> meant. And I consider myself reasonably intelligent, so I think Hegel really must be a, a challenging <laughs> guy to take on. It was translated from German, I assume. Or... Yeah. yeah, so but that the Germans say help. that it's worse in German. <laughs> okay. They say he's one of the worst German writers as well. <laughs> Well, I appreciate the critique of the premise, actually. No one's ever done that. There is something to, you find the book at the right time. So interesting. Yes. And what, what advice would you have to aspiring storytellers in that 13 to 17 age and there have aspirations to be a storyteller of some sort? What advice would you give? I understand that the broad discipline of, of storytelling, because if you look at the people who you might have an ambition to be when you're young as storytellers, uh, Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott spent 15 years making television advertisements for the big agencies in London. Uh, Don DeLillo. Don DeLillo, like so many novelists, was a copywriter. Uh, so you're either going to be uh, in the, the last century, it would have been something in advertising or journalism, or today it might be a YouTuber or a, a, an Instagram influencer, or uh, because story works in a lot more fields now. Um, but storytelling is a long, a long path to learn. The great storytellers are pretty old uh, on the whole. It's very rare that you can identify someone like Neil Gaiman, who's like a personal idol of mine, I've been lucky enough to uh, to work with now and again, uh, who who wrote his masterpiece when he was 26. Doesn't happen very often, but uh, it, that can happen. But mostly to be a storyteller, you're entering a very, very broad field. Wait, forgive my ignorance, make, but what's considered yeah. Gaiman's masterpiece? His Sandman comics. Oh. 75 issues of the Sandman uh, which he started when he was 26, or maybe even 24, actually. Now, uh, they took seven years to write. And, you know, if you haven't read The Sandman, I, I would highly recommend reading those comics. You can get those easily in digital editions now. And they're like a complete reworking of world myth. He goes through all of the great myths, rewrites them. It's, I could say a huge amount about that. But if you don't make it to being Neil Gaiman when you're 26 and you're going to have a long career, uh, the skills of storytelling can be tremendously valuable and more and more so all around us. And you can learn those skills kind of on the job uh, if you you think broadly about what storytelling is. So don't don't go and lock yourself in a crap job with the dream that you will one day be a novelist if you stay, you stay pure in that way, uh, go and learn the skills in, in some way. That's how most storytellers develop. That's great advice. Anything else you'd like to touch on? Well, if, if you just 
wind me up. I'll speak for two hours, <laughs> of course, <laughs> on a, a range of things. Uh, I guess there seems to be a, a really interesting discussion weaving through what we're talking about, about education yeah. uh, and learning and storytelling and video games and mythos and science fiction, because uh, the reason I'm so drawn to science fiction still now in my, my mid-40s is because it is this place where um, the popular and the massive culture meet the big ideas and the philosophy and the elites and everything seems to meet up in science fiction at the moment. Uh, Marvel movies are the great leveler. Everyone goes to see them at the cinema together uh, or did. I think they're losing their uh, their popularity at the moment. Um, and that, that's something that I'd like to explore explore more. What is the ultimate answer to education that harnesses the the popular and the uh, and the elite together along with our technologies in some way. Yes. I don't have an answer to that yet. Yes, there's these little semblances of like where there's potential like you have Duolingo, you have like Hamilton. Mm. So there's this way in which storytelling can pull together in this form, but we haven't yet figured out the right mechanisms. Mm. Which is to say there are a bunch of indiv invisible changes going on underneath the surface and uh we at Avalanche want to invest before you know the the, the tipping point, and so we are actively looking for companies and thinkers and um, builders who can build this yeah. future, yeah. decentralized, individually empowered, new way of of learning. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll leave you with a a thought on it as we're coming towards the end of our thing. So I'm I'm fascinated by Carl Jung, who's another person who's really hard to read and I've been trying to absorb for a long time. And uh, Carl Jung says, basically, uh, everyone is living a myth, so you should know what your myth is. Yeah. And I think that's the big difference in our world is people who are sucked into some kind of story they're living because we're all living out a story and we just do the things that seem meaningful to our story. I think that's why it's, it's much easier to get kids to try to be a professional footballer because that seems like a story they might want to live out. And when you're a kid, you're trying to live out some kind of heroic story. So I think there's something there about understanding the stories that people are living out, which lead them to educate themselves and the self-reflectiveness of then understanding whether that's yes. actually a good story in the world at yes. the moment is it going to take you where you want to go yes well thank you so much damien it's been a pleasure talking to you i feel like we've only scratched the surface but really appreciate your time that was great thanks for asking me John. one ra random personal question for you uh three body problem you seem like you have a pretty strong view against even watching it it, when it comes mm. out, I am, am a reasonable fan of the work, but you have no space for that view. Uh, I could have more space for the work if we had generally a more critical relationship to it. So as I've said to the members of my community, I'm not asking yeah. them to join in a boycott of the free body problem. I yeah. said, I'm, I'm boycotting the free body problem as a way to put a critical discussion of it on the table. Okay. Which which that video I put on YouTube does. There's yeah. like I think ten thousand people a month or something see that yeah. uh, video now. Um 
because uh, it's it's very clearly uh, a soft power project of the Chinese government. The the propagation of that novel since it became successful, paying for its translation, the English language translation is substantially toned down, and the yeah. structure is changed from the original Chinese translation. Uh, if you look at a lot of Lu's earlier books, they're like very loosely cloaked metaphors for for liberal, the liberal capitalist world are the evil aliens coming yes. to invade us. And I actually think that, that that narrative is totally valid, but people aren't considering it at yes. the moment in that context. And I think if we think about it in that context, it's it's fine. But uh, I will go a bit further and say I'm boycotting it in order that <laughs> the conversation is had. Yes. About it. Nice. Understood. 